The following is a special series of the Darden Ideas to Action podcast, focusing on the power of disruptive innovations. Good Disruption, a lively discussion between UVA Darden School of Business professors Yael grushka Kukane and Mike Lennox on cutting-edge technologies and practices that are challenging the status quo. Welcome, Yael. Welcome, Mike. Nice to see you. It's good to see you. I am very excited about today's topic here. I'm excited and a little bit mystified, you know? It's going to be interesting to hear where where we come down on this hot topic of cryptocurrency. Cryptocurrency. But before we do that, I want to, you know, think a little bit about our podcast here. We're obviously still kind of launching here. Uh, Of course, a few million subscribers, obviously, by this point. But (laughs) we've talked about a theme song, right? And so you and I have talked about good vibrations. We have, yes. Right, right. Yes. But you, tell me which vibra- good vibrations version you're thinking here. Oh, my goodness. I am going to date myself. Is it the Beach Boys? The it Beach Boys? Is, there is the Beach Boys version. Okay, that's the only one I know. But this is where I want to change because I actually want to go to the iconic 1990s Marky Mark oh, good vibrations. No. Yes. <laughs> Absolutely. So Gary, our producer, we need to work on getting the rights to Good Vibrations by Marky Mark. And and I'm wondering if we could like get him to like re-record it so we can change Good Vibrations to Good Disruptions. I like that. I like that. After my time in uh, in the Boston area, I'll bring him on, you know? Like I Are you a fan of Mark Wahlberg? I am actually. Are you? I do appreciate what he brings to the world. All right. Well that's enough of that fun stuff. Let's let's talk about cryptocurrency. So so yeah, do you own any crypto? I do not own any crypto. And I told you I was gonna ask you exactly the same question. Do you own any crypto? I do not. And I'm, I'm going to put my cards on the table right to begin with. I am a skeptic. I am, I'm going to put it out there. I know there's a lot of people who are, you know, all in on this. Uh, I'm a skeptic. Well, we've uh, last, you know, we talked in our previous podcast about um, um, EVs and electric vehicles, and you are a big fan of those. And yeah. we know that you're a believer in that disruption and you think it's all good and leading to a, to a brighter future. You seem pretty strong in your position around this. And I'm curious, like, why is it that you think that? Why are you so skeptic about cryptocurrency? Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm uh, you know, usually a technology enthusiast. One of the reasons we're doing this podcast Um have you ever seen the uh, South Park episode with the underpants gnomes? <laughs> no, I okay. have not. All right. This is like a classic. It goes back like 10 years. And so uh, this is what I feel like when you talk to like a crypto enthur- enthusiast. It sounds like the underpants gnomes. So just to set the stage here, Kyle, one of the kids on South Park, is having his underpants stolen at night. <laughs> and they figure it's the underpants gnomes who they then follow to their lair. I can see where this is going. Yes. Already. And they ask them, you know, what are you doing? And so the underpants gnomes explain their three-step process. Step one, steal the underpants. Step two, question mark. Step three, profits. Got right? It. You get yes, it? Yes. So like this is what I feel like they say. They like are talking about this as if this is an amazing opportunity. But when you press them on that kind of middle part, like the actual like business model here, you get a lot of words, but I'm not sure you get a lot of certainty here about what exactly we're talking about here. Well, it's interesting. So if I were to uh, try to um, translate your skepticism and kind of distill from it why it is that you have this resistance or your, this negativity or this doubt in your mind as to whether or not this is a disruption, a good disruption or where it's headed, 
I would say that it's um, a little bit perhaps for uh, a gap in knowledge or this black hole of information that we can't quite grasp uh, yeah. or the novices, those folks on the outside seem to not fully understand. Yeah. Um, and so perhaps I would kind of turn it around and say to you, well, what about all those people who are participating in it and those who have taken the time to study it? I agree and I acknowledge that most of them are a little bit younger than us in some sense, or many of them tend to be on the younger side, savvy, pick up new technology, do some you know, coding, pick it up, learn how to do it themselves, and they seem to get all in, enthusiastic, yeah. invested, making money, knowing how it grows, understanding the ins and out, and drinking the Kool-Aid. So could it be a little bit of like, maybe we just need to try? Maybe you and I need to go th- go ahead and buy some cryptocurrency and invest and, and figure it out for ourselves? Uh, this sounds like Dutch tulip bulbs to me, right? You know, everybody, all the cool kids are doing it. You need to get in on this trend before it goes away, right? Um, for those of you who aren't familiar, Dutch tulip bulbs is this famous case of an inflationary market where we had a bubble uh, around the prices of Dutch tulip bulbs. Um, and you see this with various markets every once in a while. You look at uh, Bitcoin, of course, it was uh, up around what it was at 60 some thousand. It's down now to like 40. It was down to as low as 30. Uh, it's volatile. It, oh, yes, it's, it's been volatile, volatile for yeah. sure. Uh, Dogecoin and all these others are coming on the market. What was it about? Uh, 1,500, or sorry, 4,500 different cryptocurrencies now uh, in distribution. Um, I don't know. It's It just seems to smack of a, of a bubble here in many ways. And the investment thesis seems to be the, you know, the famous you know, greater fool theory here. As long as you're not the last one out, uh, you'll, be, you'll be good. Well, I do, um, if we go back a little bit and kind of try to unravel where this all came from and what is the, some of the motivation behind the whole industry, you know, emerging, the whole cryptocurrency idea, I do buy the fact um, that people were getting fed up with with paying lots of fees, right? Having these intermediaries, having these banks, having these third parties controlling all the transaction. It does seem in a world of, um, you know, Napster and the world of, of, of Venmo that we can find better ways to do things, right? And we can connect directly and we can use our computers in more sophisticated manners that, you know, we don't need to go to Bank of America or to the Wells Fargo in order to do all of our transactions. Don't you see that? I mean, I'm sure. Yeah, I mean, I think if we start to unpack it, you know, again, I'm a crypto skeptic. I'm not a blockchain skeptic. I actually think the underlying technology of blockchain has a lot of use cases that I think, you know, create value. In the case of current- And let's just clarify like yeah. that distinction, okay? Like the blockchain is the technology that allows us to actually exchange this currency, this money, right. without well, actually having physical money. Right. Well, it's, it's even beyond that, right? It's this idea of a distributed ledger. So that this idea that, think of it as a database of transactions here, is not controlled by a single party, uh, that it exists out there uh, in the world, um, and in fact, it's transparent, and others can see this ledger uh, available. Whereas in most financial transactions, there's a trusted intermediary, the bank or some other intermediary who is kind of providing that role of kind of managing the database. And and I think that's where I I struggle because when I think about what's the problem crypto is trying to solve, at least for me, my bank works really well. I find that like when I write a check or I use my credit card, like transactions go through and I'm able to make payments. So, um, I mean, I definitely think there are certain things like foreign exchange and the like where uh, this could could make sense. It's the fees. It's paying all those fees. That is painful. Yeah, but it's not clear to me that even with something like uh, Bitcoin, you still have third-party intermediaries, these wallets, that you're paying fees. So, again, what problem is it exactly solving here? 
uh, is not clear to me. And look, the evidence is not good that Bitcoin and these other uh, currencies are being used as actual transacting mechanisms. All they're being done is trading on speculative buying here. Um, probably with the one exception of illegal transactions, right? It's great for money laundering. It's great for illegal transactions here that you don't want to go through a reputable third-party bank. Um, but it's unclear to me that there are that many use cases that motivate the need here. Now, there is more and more attention globally, uh, locally in the U.S., but also globally around the world from the regulators, like around the fact that they have to start interfering and intervening and put in place certain mechanisms to ensure that everything is done that is legal and that it's not used for the wrong purposes. Um, so if it were to disrupt, so let's go down the route, that wrote, you know, the route and say, let's assume that cryptocurrency is a disruptor. Who is it going to disrupt? It's a great question. I mean, I think first and foremost, the, the ones who fear this would be the banks, right? Okay. So like if, if you can disintermediate the role of the banks or the other financial institutions here, that clearly would be disruptive. Now, again, I'm, I'm skeptical of whether that will actually manifest itself to the degree that the kind of crypto champions are saying uh, uh, here. Um, but, but clearly, they at least would be one. I don't know. Any others you'd think of? Well, it's a good question. It could... Uh, uh open up a string of new type of commerce, I think, in, in the way that people interact with each other, right? So it's, yes, it's the banks, but it's the PayPals and the Venmos, and it's all of the ways in which we exchange payment. Like if I want to go down the, down the road and I you know, want to use a service that is a little bit uh, you know, vague and I'm not familiar with the environment and I'm trying to use, let's say, internet, right? We both of us read an article this morning about an internet provider that basically is using cryptocurrency to encourage people to share their hotspots with each other and kind of share their broadband with the world. I can see that I would need, I could go ahead and use that service. And so my internet service provider will eventually feel the hit, right? They'll see that there's a change in the contracting and they'll start to think about their own business model moving forward, right? Well, this is, this is again, where I struggle because I think, again, there are obvious solutions that blockchain can help, um, or needs where blockchain can help. Um, take something like Venmo or PayPal, right? They're not blockchain solutions, no. right? Uh, they require you to have a bank account, and they are providing a service uh, that allows you to transact more efficiently. Um, again, I'm not against like fintech innovation. I think there's a lot of that going on. But whether a blockchain cryptocurrency solution is necessary, uh, I don't know. Uh, Helium, who we were talking about, who's doing this uh, networking piece, clearly, you know, they've created an interesting world in which Third parties basically are providing services to build out the network, and you need to incentivize people to do this. Exactly. So they've created a cryptocurrency that you get as part of this. It's not clear. Your ability what... to make money basically while you're providing right. broadband access to other people. But do you need a cryptocurrency to do that? Like, can't you just like have like U.S. dollars going into people's accounts? Again, I'm I'm struggling with why the cryptocurrency part of this is so is so necessary and so hyped in all these examples. One repeated theme in all of these uh, business models that seems to work is this distributed approach. This idea that there is no centralized body that I don't put too many eggs in one basket, and I'm not relying on a single company to rise and fall and succeed, but that we're all part of it and that we all, 
you know, own a piece of this business and this, this company. I think that's the philosophy behind it. That's what is so appealing to many people who jump in and participate, is that they are part of this network. They are part of this chain. They are part of regulating this whole industry and that we're not relying on a single entity outside. Yeah, this is a definite kind of libertarian, Silicon Valley, stick it to the man, right? Like, <laughs> stick it to the man, we don't, we don't need these big bad banks, you know, doing this for us. Um, maybe... Maybe, but again, um, take you know actual currencies like U.S. dollars, right? I don't know. It like it kind of feels good to have the weight of a large federal government behind that currency, guaranteeing basically that it is a method of of exchange. Um, so I mean, yeah, stick it to the man. But but why again? Like why isn't U.S. dollars working for me? That I need you know Bitcoin. Um, I, I'm at a loss. Well, um, I'm going to call a friend. Can I call a friend? Absolutely. I'm going to call we a friend. We definitely need help on this topic here. <laughs> I'm going to call a friend. I'm not sure she's actually going to uh, side with me or side with you, but she'll definitely shed some light on all of it and give us some more things to think about. Kinda um, HM is, a, is an associate professor of business, business administration. And Kinda, you've developed quite a, a reputation for knowing a thing or two about cryptocurrency. Um, you know, we're talking about cryptocurrency in the context of disruption. Do you think it's a disruption? It's a disruptive technology? Uh, tell us your position. So I think you guys have it right with separating the crypto from the currency. I would equate the currency part to money, money supply issues, and then the crypto part is more the payment rails. And so the initial motivation was really about the fees and the banks are extracting large rents through fees. But if you actually look at the initial, um, the white paper that set up Bitcoin, it set up this entire infrastructure without really specifying how we were going to have such low fees in this, this new system. To the extent that it would generate lower fees, I think it would be disruptive. It puts some competition in the banking sector. But look at the Bitcoin system the way it is now. I, I think, Mike, you mentioned there are still high fees. And the way the system is set up, it automatically trends towards high fees because you need to incentivize um, the miners that are kind of collecting the blocks and putting them in the blockchain to actually expend the computing power and the energy, which is very costly, to create these blocks. And so to do that, you have to you know, give rewards. Um, and the blocks are sort of set up so that there's a limited amount of information that could go into them. The reason being that if you want to store, uh, Yael, as you said, if you want to store this in a decentralized fashion, lots of people need to store it. Storage costs are extremely high as the, uh, the size of the blockchain gets exponentially larger. So until that technology, storage technology uh, uh, makes it such that we can store massive amounts of information on multiple computers very cheaply, um, the block size in blockchain is going to be uh, restricted so that we don't accumulate too much data at any given point in time. But okay, so what does that mean? That means that if you want to get your transaction put in a block, you can do that by incentivizing the miners and kind of essentially tipping them. So you do see these spikes where um, you know, mining uh, power is either down because of some, you know, shock uh, to in the locations where the miners uh, exist. In those in those scenarios, you actually see a big spike in fees higher than what you would have to pay a bank. Right. So the system itself, it's a very noble objective. If it was able to achieve um, lower transaction costs, that would be competitive against the banking system. But it's done in such a way that we haven't actually seen that um, that play out. So that's the payment part. 
Can, can now, I, can I yeah. try to put this yeah. in, my, in the layman's term? The way I, I've tried to articulate this to like students and the like is you need somebody to balance the books. And so in the kind of financial mm-hmm. intermediary side, that would be the bank, kind of make sure the books are balanced. Here in a decentralized system, you need to incentivize somebody to basically balance the books. And then that's the miners. That's where they come in to make sure that you know if multiple transactions are taking place at the same time, that the, the book's clear at the end yep. of the day. Is that, is that the right yep. way to think about it? Okay. Yes. What yes. about, what about, can you speak, and we're getting a little technical here, but like the proof of work piece, um, my understanding, like th- this is what's leading to yep. huge energy needs in the Bitcoin model. And is that the only way to do this? Well, so there's been innovation since then, but the, the proof of work is actually interesting because that's going to lead us back to the money supply part. So if you think about what the miners are doing, in theory, they're not doing anything hard. Transactions, so you know, you you have your Bitcoin wallet on your computer. You enter into tra- a transaction. Your computer emits a signal that other that nodes uh, in the system will pick up. They will then send those transactions to the miners, who package them into blocks, send it back to the full nodes, who can add the block back to the blockchain. None of this is complicated. In that, if you think about all the miners are doing, they're just taking a bunch of data packaging it to a block and sending it back to the node. So why does it involve so much uh, computing power and so much energy? Well, that gets us to the second part of what Bitcoin was supposed to disrupt, which is the monetary system. So on the payment rail side, they wanted to disrupt the banking system by lowering fees, but they also wanted to disrupt essentially the market for US dollars by introducing another form of currency. Um, Now, when you think about introducing a currency. There's got to be something that determines how the money is is enters into the economy. So, with the Fed, there's U.S. monetary policy. That's the that's the mechanism through which uh, money enters the the U.S. economy. When we think about U.S. dollars, so how would money enter the Bitcoin system? Well, the the creators of Bitcoin, um, whoever they may be, decided that they were going to set up this game. So there's a there's a supply. Can I, can I interrupt right there for a yeah. second? Yeah. You, you you hit on an important point here. So maybe to help people who are listening. So you said whoever they may be. Like, do we have any sense of who? You know, Joe the, Shirley and Adam. <laughs> who start? Yeah. Who started this? And like, do you think that matters? Because if we were talking about kind of influencing our global monetary system here, is there could this be nefarious? Like, could there be some nefarious I, party I, I, behind it, this? It goes back to your question, Mike, of what are we trying to solve? And this was sort of presented as this could have these big societal benefits, but it's not clear that it does. Now now that we're sort of 10 years from when Bitcoin started to take off, maybe 12 years from when Bitcoin started to take off, we've seen all the problems it can create, the benefits. um, We can talk about those in a second, but then you go to maybe this was just somebody who was trying to make a quick profit, and they did this. They did this by sell, by creating this infrastructure that you know people sort of herded on um, for various reasons that we can also talk about. And maybe they're out. Maybe they cashed out, and they're you know off in an island somewhere, just watching the rest of the world go crazy about about Bitcoin. But the fact that we don't know who created it, and the fact that we still have yet to come up with a um, a compelling answer to what big social problem are we trying to solve really does put some question marks around what the true motivation of this was. And just to bring it back uh, to your point, you started to describe to us, Kinda, how these currencies get um, 
put into the economy, so to speak, or, or thrown out there for trading. So can you just complete that process? So whoever those yeah. individuals are, wherever they are, how do these new currencies get generated, this new money get generated? Right. So the, this, the idea in Bitcoin was that, all right, we're going to make these quote unquote miners um, solve complicated uh computing problem. So essentially they collect all these transactions. They have to put it through a function that will, that it turns a bunch of text into another text of string. Um, and that text of string has to have certain properties. You can adjust the properties that the output has to have to make it harder to generate a piece of string with those properties. That's what generates this increase, the, the increased cost of doing so. Right. And the idea was that, well, we're going to in inject money into the, the quote unquote economy as rewards for engaging in this sort of effort, this kind of costly effort where you know, it may not be costly for you as, as an individual, but it's costly for um, your computer. You need to have like this big, fast hardware and pay high energy costs in order to do it. And you're willing to do that if you're getting compensated. So the miners and this proof of work, this costly proof of work is the uh, flip side of injecting the money into the system. So we're going to create something that's costly in order to compensate it. And that compensation is what's going to essentially be the monetary policy of the Bitcoin system. Fascinating. So, so and so you, you did mention, sorry, Mike. Yeah. Um, no, go ahead. I, what's so fascinating is the, the parallels between some of the things that you mentioned and what we talked about in a dis different disruption, which was the um, electric vehicles. You mentioned this notion of computing power and the fact that we have to store information. Uh, these chains get longer and longer. Uh, this proof of work is work that somebody has to do to invest. Uh, could it be in a future where technology continues to evolve and cost of computing and transaction continues to, to decline or to, to change? Is there still maybe a glimpse of hope that we can uh, reduce some of these costs Who's to the system? Who's the technology system? optimist now? I yeah, say. exactly. Okay, okay. <laughs> Yeah, for sure. And so even, you know, even in the short term, there's been a shift away from this proof of work, which is, you know, it's costly and it's very bad for the environment. I mean, people have estimated that Bitcoin, and this was a couple of years ago, takes up more energy than, than the country of Argentina. So, you know, that's not ideal for the environment. So one option is, yeah, well, computing power um, gets better. The problem is, if it's not costly, you sort of lose that game that was set up in order to release Bitcoins into the economy. So you need to have people incur um, some sort of cost in order to justify giving them this currency that the hope is will be valuable. Yeah. So what you don't want to do is give out currency um, for free because then there's no there's no way to sort of regulate the monetary policy. The way that Bitcoin was going to regulate the monetary policy is if they want to slow down, if the, where they, in this case, is the algorithm. So it's sort of programmed into the algorithm that was initially set up in Bitcoin that we're going to release a certain amount of Bitcoins like every, um, you know, 10 minutes. So by changing the cost, you can actually change the speed at which Bitcoin uh, is released into the economy. So if the if thing becomes costless, then you've sort of lost that lever of um, the Bitcoin monetary policy, and you'd need to come up with another construct that would be able to regulate the flow of the currency into, into the economy, which is why I think you guys hit the nail on the head at the beginning when you said, is this about the crypto, which I would equate to payment rails, 
Or is it fundamentally about the money supply? So could we take this crypto technology and just build it over the U.S. dollar and not have to worry about, um, you know, how do we set a monetary policy with this artificial game, this artificial costly game? I'm curious, when you think about analogies here, I've heard people make the analogy like, this is going to be like gold at the end. This is going to be an asset class that gets traded um, like gold. Is that is that the right way to think about this? Or is that, in your mind, not not correct for something like Bitcoin? So I think the biggest difference between... So there's a similarity and there's a difference. So the, the biggest difference is that gold still has some residual fundamental value. Mm. Um Part of it may be cultural, but ultimately this is a metal. You can build stuff with it. Um, yeah, well, I'm so, watching the Olympics. There's a lot of gold going on. There. Exactly. Yeah, I'll show me her rings too, her gold rings. So. Exactly. Um, you know, you could use it in infrastructure if need be. So let's say people didn't covet it, people didn't value it. You could use it to build stuff. You could use it to like adorn buildings. And so there's still some fundamental value to physical, it. Physical, physical value. Exactly. So, right. right. That will mean that means that you're not even if no one is willing to accept it for transactions. You, you'd still be willing to accept it for yourself. The problem with these sorts of what we call fiat currencies, which are intrinsically worthless. So the U.S. dollar is also a fiat currency. The U.S. dollar is, is intrinsically worthless. You, you can't do much with it. It's, you know, it's just a piece of paper. Um, the, the problem is it relies on it being generally accepted in exchange for goods and services. So what the the issue with how, how do we resolve it with the U.S. dollar? Well, the U.S. dollar gets its, let's, let's call it fundamental value, from the court system. So by being declared legal tender by the government, that means that if a seller refuses to accept your U.S. dollars uh, in exchange for their product, he has no recourse unless you've, you pre-signed a contract with him saying that you would pay in some, something other than U.S. dollars. So that designation by the government and its recognition by the the judicial system is what helps resolve you know some of this uncertainty about whether US dollars or what equilibrium we settle on with US dollars that doesn't mean that US dollars will never lose their value there is always the possibility that people just wake up and say we don't want to accept US dollars but the probability of getting to that equilibrium is so low whereas with bitcoin there's no legal designation. There's no judicial designation. And so you rely on just how many sellers are willing to accept it, which is why when someone like Elon Musk comes in and says, oh, I'm not, I'm, Tesla's not going to accept Bitcoins as payment anymore, you see a massive drop mm. um, in the value of Bitcoin because now there's a big question mark over, well, if this big player isn't going to accept it, then maybe others won't. Whereas if Elon Musk went out and said, I'm not going to accept U.S. dollars, I really don't think you would see a change in the value of the U.S. dollar. And that's a good point. So, I mean, the U.S., obviously, and the U.S. dollar is in a privileged position in our, in our global financial community. Um, there are countries that peg their currencies to the U.S. dollar. We, we have seen at least, I think, one example of a country, wasn't it El Salvador, who is now pegging yeah. their monetary system in to, cr- to Bitcoin? Yeah. I mean, does that have any legs? Is that, you know, could we see a global movement to get off the U.S. dollar and, and really move towards Bitcoin? So I think in, in countries where people don't have trust in the central bank to maintain the value of the currency, something like Bitcoin um, or another an, another form of cryptocurrency could um, could be beneficial 
because so what is the problem? It goes back to how much do you trust the monetary policy? And so when we say what is the problem, this is now kind of on the money side as opposed to on the payment side. It's it's interesting in the so just kind of an anecdote on the on the blockchain, the very first blockchain, the very first block, sorry, in the Bitcoin blockchain encodes like a piece of text. That's a, a headline from a London Times article that was basically talking about how central banks around the world are trying to bail out their banking systems. I'm paraphrasing heavily, but it it and there's actually no need for this text to be in the blockchain. It's it's it doesn't change anything except like the ultimate hash that you get when you take that that uh, set of transactions in that piece of text and you run it through the function to get the text of fixed length. Right. But so that sort of raised the idea like, okay, maybe this isn't so much about payments. Maybe this is actually people were, were upset that um, governments and central banks were trying to bail out the financial system after they created such a mess. And that led to an increase in the money supply. And everyone was talking about how there would be massive inflation. We didn't see it in the U.S. as a result of the financial crisis. We actually didn't see it for a very long time. We're only seeing it now for a completely different set of reasons. But in a country where you don't trust your central bank to retain the value of, of currency, then a rigid system that has a predefined algorithm for releasing money into the economy gets rid of this fear that will this currency preserve its purchasing power. Um, so it kind of gets rid of the inflation threat. So in a country like like El Salvador or a country that would otherwise peg uh, its currency to the U.S. dollar, adopting Bitcoin is a way to say, hey, look, I mean, we you we don't have a really good track record of preserving the value of our currency, but you don't have to worry about it anymore because we're not in charge. That's the benefit on that side. The, the, the cost is, and this was actually one of the big failures um, of the gold standard. So Mike, since you said like, what is the, the parallel with the gold standard? So we talked about the difference. Gold is physical and has some fundamental value. A similarity between gold and Bitcoin is that there's no easy way to increase supply in a crisis. So mm -hmm. one of the What's argued by some economic historians one of the as one of the big failures of the gold standard was during the Great Depression. So the U.S. would have benefited tremendously. The U.S. banking sector would have benefited tremendously from some liquidity injections by the Fed um, to deal with all the runs on the banks, not all of which were related to fundamentals. Some of them were just pure panic driven runs. Right. But the, the Fed was arguing that we're on the gold standard. So we can't increase the supply of U.S. dollars and give it to the banks unless miraculously there's a big increase in the supply of gold reserves. And so that, I mean, that's been argued by some as one of the reasons why you went from like a stock market crash in uh, 1929 that could have just been a normal course recession into a very prolonged and protracted depression because there was no um, way, no channel for the central bank to step in and provide liquidity to the banking sector that needed it. So, that, so that's, um, that's like Bitcoin fascinating would have to me, right? The same. Yeah. Because I mean, this is like saying at one level, you know, again, getting it back to the stick it to the man. I was kind of, you, I was kind of had me convinced there, like, all right, I'm, I'm privileged being here in the United States. We have some faith, you know, uh, in our government that they'll continue to, to make this a viable currency. But if you're in a country where that's not the case, this makes sense. But now you're highlighting that the very features of Bitcoin that make it um, stable, if you will, this predictability on how it increases. Mm -hmm. 
actually hinders your ability to address some of the financial crises yep. you might face because you can't increase the money supply. You've taken away the, the external decision making, that yeah, kind you, of authority you, you, that makes decisions and can kind of take things in different directions when you need to act exogenously in, in response to a crisis. Right? Exactly. And yeah. I, I guess, the, a, a bit, not that I'm a Bitcoin defender, but if I had to put myself in the shoes of a Bitcoin defender, they may argue that, well, if if we kind of get rid of the banking system in the first place and everything is done through like, you, you know, on decentralized platforms, then maybe there won't be a financial crisis in the first place. As much as I disagree with that argument, I would think that the bigger counterpoint to that is look at what happened in COVID. That has nothing to do with the banking system. The banking system was very sound, but you know, the Fed had to step in and provide liquidity um, to cut, so that you know we could shut down the economy and sort. I liken that uh, what happened you know over the past two years at the very beginning was you basically shut down the economy and you rely on the Fed and to some extent fiscal policy, which takes longer to make decisions on to keep the economy on life support. And yeah. so if we were on a Bitcoin system or if we were on a gold standard, that would be impossible. So there's a few things that I'm hearing, um, and, and we're going to kind of wrap things up in a moment and ask you to take a position, Kinda, around whether cryptocurrency is a good disruption, a bad disruption, or perhaps not a disruption at all. So we're going to come back to that question in a moment. But if I were to flip things uh, around and say, well, one of the things that is preventing cryptocurrency from being accepted by more people and being kind of thought of as a more uh, mainstream kind of uh, uh, avenue is a lack of trust that people are reporting this question mark that uh, uh, Mike spoke of earlier in the process that people don't really understand it. People don't trust it. And this notion of volatility, that it seems to be fluctuating and that there's a very little ability to predict. Um, do you think that either of those things can be solved, at least in the U.S., in the near term, in any meaningful way to change people's perception? So I think the first thing is that those are related. They're very closely re related. The volatility, so the, there's a fixed or a deterministic supply of Bitcoins, or on many of these cryptocurrencies, a, a fixed supply. Um, and demand is what's bouncing around as people don't trust it. So the volatility is really coming from this lack of trust. Now, if you had a more flexible mechanism through which you would change the, the Bitcoin supply, then, you know, if people don't trust, if, if the supply of, sorry, if the demand for Bitcoin goes down, the supply of Bitcoin should also go down by the same amount. That would create some stability and that may actually improve trust. Interesting. But the way the system is set up, it doesn't, it doesn't allow for it. So at, on the bigger question of, you know, what can be done to improve trust, I think it does go back to Mike's question of what does Bitcoin want to do in the first place? It says that it wants to be a currency, um, but in order to be a currency without any sort of fundamental value, you have to have people trusting it. And in order for people to trust it, they have to believe that other people trust it. And so there's no way to get rid of this multiplicity of equilibria. Um, even, you know, the declaration of it as a fiat currency doesn't 100% get rid of it. So in that sense, to me, I view, maybe we're getting now to the point where you're, I'm going to take a stand. Yes. yes. I don't, good, good I don't, bad, or no. Good, bad, or no disruption. Yes. I don't see that. I don't see this as a viable currency. To me, it fails as a currency um, because of the issues that, that that um, you know we've talked about. There are situations where you want flexibility. It doesn't give you that flexibility. Um, and the, the 
the, the, uh, what's encoded in it to prevent it from giving that flexibility also magnifies um, the volatility when there's lack of trust. And when you have this big amount of volatility, it's much harder to get people to trust that this is a good medium of exchange. So to me, I think it fails as a currency. Um, now, could it, could the crypto part, could the payment rails part be a, a, a disruption? I think yes. I think it has pushed the banking system to be a bit more efficient. Uh, so you see it, a good example is JP Morgan. So JP Morgan, I think, has created its own internal token. Um, so, you know, one of the what, the types of payments that I guess are the slowest and the most costly are cross-border payments. And right. a big part of that is all this anti-money laundering compliance that has to be done. Tip, it seems like that's just that hasn't been efficient. So the, the compliance gets checked at multiple steps in the process. So by using this idea of a token that fee, that where you can kind of keep track of where that token has been. So each US dollar for the institutional clients that participate in this arrangement with JP Morgan is associated with a token. And you can kind of encode in that token where it's been before so that the checks can be faster the checks of the um, anti-money laundering compliance can be faster and more efficient. Wonderful. As that, a, somebody who has family in Israel and in England, I need right. something that makes those those types of transactions right. much quicker. Yeah. Think, right. Yeah. yeah. So I think, that I think that so to the extent now, would the banking system have eventually done this? I think so, but I I would I'm favorable to the argument that um, crypto and the blockchain technology by sort of introducing a potential competition on the payment rails, push these guys, the banking system to sort of, you know, all right, let's kind of get our act together. It what It's not like a massive innovation. It really is just better data storage and a better database and querying it more efficiently. So a small, but a small, good, a small, a small good disruption. So, <laughs> so I, I do think on the payment system, it's, it's probably going to leave like a positive footprint. Now, but on the currency side, no way. Well, I'm, I'm right with you, actually. I'm, this is very consistent. Like I said before, I think blockchain, I hope we're, we'll spend some time on another podcast will, about blockchain sure. and NFTs. NFTs, and the, yes. Uh, and that is like. where the excitement I, I'm going to go out on a limb and I'm going to say no disruption in the following sense. You know, we can think about Betamax. We can think about, you know, all of these artifacts, fax machines that like name a particular point in time. I think we're going to look back in the 2020s and, you know, mention of cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin will peg you to this point in time and will not be something that has this longevity that, that people think. This is going to be a fad that we're, we're seeing. So I, I think I agree with, with the two of you. Uh, the currency side of things doesn't seem like that's uh, the appeal here. I think the empowerment, the fact that we're giving... Uh, um, young folks who know how to code, some capability to come up with new ways to kind of connect and new business models to innovate and create. I think that that's where the excitement lies. Maybe that's more on the block, blockchain side of things. You, you are um, just always the optimist. I'm usually I, the optimist I am very here, optimistic. But you are, you are, you're putting a positive spin on this. I love it. I love it. I'm well, going to get all the negative um, tweets from the uh, crypto Exactly. The crypto exactly. Spend enough you, time on Twitter. And, yeah, and yeah, sometimes, yeah. some days you'll be optimistic. Yeah. Um, I want to make sure that we thank Kinda. Kinda, thank you so much for your um, expertise. It was hugely valuable to us. And uh, we really enjoyed chatting with you. So thank you for joining us today. Thank yeah. you so much. This was fantastic. Thank you. Thank you. And Mike, our conclusion is no disruption. 
or I'm saying no disruption. No disruption. No disruption. Okay, and I'm saying part of it is good disruption. And, and as always, half full. Yeah. Yeah, and, and as always, let's thank our producer Gary, our uh, lead researcher Becky, and I also want to give a preemptive thank you to Mark Wahlberg for agreeing to uh, re-record his classic "Good Vibrations" for us. So we're looking forward to that, Mark, and we really appreciate you uh, contributing to our podcast. Love it. Can we call out a celebrity every time? Absolutely. Okay. Good Disruption is a podcast from the University of Virginia Darden School of Business.